Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. In the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, as we speak, Jenna Drosos, she is all tested up for the COVID passing uh, with a colors, I would say. Uh, she's the CEO of Signet Jewelers. They're based in Akron, Ohio. It's a publicly traded company. SIG uh, is the ticker, about a $4 billion market cap. Jenna, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about the jewelry business in the world of a global pandemic. Tell us what the last couple of years have been like for your business. And Signet is, I read that Signet is the world's largest retailer of diamond jewelry. Is that true? Yes, that's right. So we operate under a number of retail banners that many customers know, Kay, Zales, Jared, Banter by Piercing Pagoda. We have an online, uh, purely digital play retailer, jamesallen.com. Just recently in the last year, purchased Diamonds Direct and Roxbox, which is the number one jewelry rental and subscription cool. business in the U.S. So we are number one in the U.S., both in bricks and mortar and e-commerce. We're also the number one jeweler in Canada with People's Jewelers and in the UK with Ernest Jones and H. Samuel. So I, I just looking at your fundamentals here on the Bloomberg, it's great. With any stock, you can type yep. GF Go and see your revenue uh, and um, EPS. You guys are doing great business, obviously, up 50% year over year in terms of uh, revenue growth, EPS at a near record high. Um, why, why is that? This is really the culmination of several years of transformation that the company has been under. And I'm very proud of our team for embracing those strategies and for the passion that they have. We, we have been working to drive out all costs that customers don't see or care about. And we've, invest, we've invested that in creating a much stronger digital presence. What we know about shoppers as they came through COVID is that they're much more interested in searching and browsing online before they go to a retail store. In fact, in our business, now 90% of our highest value customers, so people who spend more than $500 with us, interact with us both online and in stores. So this, this has is been a profound the growth? change. I mean, if you look across different segments, and I know you have a ton of new kind of uh, high-tech um, businesses springing up, is, is online sales your, your biggest growth business? It's definitely the biggest new interaction point for our customers. Still about 80% of stores in of sales in jewelry happen in store. So people aren't buying as much online, but they're definitely getting informed online. We have features now like virtual try-on, uh, online virtual jewelry consulting, asynchronous chat where you can chat with someone one day and come back to the same chat a week later. So we've really invested in digital tools to make the shopping experience easy. So talk to us about the, the pandemic, the two years. Did you shut down stores and how did you manage that? I, I'm guessing it's a regional situation in different parts of the country doing different uh, types of policies. So we, we took a very proactive stance on that to keep our team members safe. Uh, we closed our stores almost exactly two years ago on March 23rd. That was a, a scary thing to do for a retailer that was yep. very brick and mortar focused. But we had already been transforming our digital operations. The Christmas before, um, every one of our sales associates had been working with iPads in the store. So within 48 hours, we turned those on in their living rooms 
and they were still able to serve, um, serve our customers. Our digital business really exploded during that time period and we were ready to lean into that pivot. And, and I would say if anything, it accelerated our transformation. That's, you know, that amazed me talking to different luxury retailers about how customers did make the pivot to digital. Like if I'm gonna lay down a big chunk of money for something, whether it's a, a diamond or an automobile or a fur coat, I wanna see it, touch it, feel it, but that wasn't necessarily the case. Do you buy a lot of fur coats? I do not. <laughs> well, you, you know, you have to you have to think about what matters most in each category. And in jewelry, the two key things that customers are looking for before they make an expensive purchase are consultation or advice and visualization. You want to see what it looks like. Mm. But think about trying to look at a diamond in a store using a loop. It's not very easy. I mean, you pull it back and forth in front of your eye, you can't see the diamond that well. We came up with a technology where we take hundreds of photos of a diamond, blow it up 40 times in HD, you can actually see the, the you know, a diamond much better now digitally than you can you even can. in the store. Yeah, I'm sure that's, that's the case. What about uh, the current war in Ukraine? How, and the sanctions on Russia, how difficult is that as a diamond retailer when I'm, I've read that Russia may be the world's largest supplier of raw diamonds. So thankfully, we don't have any operations on the ground in Russia or Ukraine, uh, but we did act very quickly on this. Um, Signet has been a leader in responsible and ethical sourcing of jewelry now for more than a decade. We're founders of the Responsible Jewelry Council, members of the World Diamond Council, and we actually go above and beyond that and, and have our own Signet Responsible Sourcing Protocol. So customers for many years have been able to count on everything in a Signet store being pristinely sourced, and we're agile. Uh, we have a group of strategic vendors. We've gone to them. We've said we don't want any diamonds sourced after this conflict uh, that came from Russia in our jewelry. Right. We've stopped our own direct interaction, and so customers can feel very good about buying jewelry at Signet. All right, Jenna, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate you coming into our studios here today. Uh, Jenna Drosos, uh, CEO of Signet Jewelers, again, publicly traded company, SIG. They're based in Akron, Ohio, but Jenna joins us here in New York, and we appreciate that. All right, Supreme Court nomination. Got another one coming. That means we're going to have some highly contested, uh, uh, I guess, some hearings, if you will. June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Opinion, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. All right, so Katanji Brown-Jackson, June. What can you tell us about Katanji Brown-Jackson? Well, she is currently... Uh appellate court on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is sort of known as the second highest court in the land. It's the feeder court for the Supreme Court. And um, she was a district court judge for 10 years. She just had a hearing last year to get onto the D.C. Circuit Court of a judge. She has a background as a public defender, which is something that's so unusual on the court. The last person who defended criminals who sat on the court was... Um, was it was decades ago uh, okay. so what what um what we're say, seeing is that she might be attacked because of her defense of you know people and that's one of the attacks that they lodged when she was at uh at her i just hearings. remember i just remember the kavanaugh hearing being so ugly so ugly and so many images that are searing right. people's you know literally television images how do you think this one's going to go well 
if you remember, the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, which were after the Kavanaugh okay. hearings, were not that ugly. You probably you remember that yep, because yep. you remember Kavanaugh because it stood out. Right. And we remember Clarence Thomas. There are some hearings that really stand out. And a lot of times you don't remember what what the the nominee said you worry you remember what the attack on the nominee was it's all about the questions in these kinds of hearings it's all about the senators getting their questions in and so you'll find a lot of the republican senators who have presidential ambitions like josh hawley ted cruz are going to be on the attack most likely in these hearings even though i mean her record is i would say I mean, it's it's difficult to assail her on certain points. For example, the hot button issues like abortion, religious rights. She hasn't written about that. She's been on the court for only a few months, so she hasn't written about that. And her, as a district court judge, you don't write about those things. So they're not going to be able to get her on that. So they've found other things to assail her on. Well, like what? Like what? That's a good question. That's a good question, well, Matt Miller. Let me tell what, you what. I mean, without, without, we don't want to get political about it, obviously. Um, but if you, when you were at Harvard Law or wherever yes, you studied, um, I'm sure you had to take the other side occasionally. Right. Right. So put yourself in the shoes of a white male Republican. Gee, I wonder which one I should of one the of the no, of the few no, that are I mean, on the with, Judiciary with, with, Committee, yeah. uh, all of them uh, except for one. There's one. There's one female Republican. I will tell you because we know what they're going to attack on. Basically, they're going what to attack. What would you do if you were advising the Republican Party? How do you get rid of Kenji? KBJ. How they can't do, do it? it. They can't get rid of her unless the Democrats who've held together, by the way, all 50 Democrats on all of Biden's nominees, unless one of them suddenly says, Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, oh, I'm not going to support her. They really can't get her. And the thing is that, so the attacks are going to be, Mitch McConnell has already signaled this, she's soft on crime. She was a public, a federal public defender. So she's soft on crime. And also Josh Hawley came out with something a week ago that has not been raised in the three times she's been before the Judiciary Committee, and including the one time that she was there when he was questioning her, and that's that she's soft on child pornographers. That her sentencing, see now this is a good area for Republicans because who doesn't hate child pornographers? You know, it's despicable. Well, certainly the Republicans do, right? And the Democrats do, we all do, right? It's, and also it doesn't involve, and it's about sentencing, and it doesn't involve the sensitive area of racist, racist sentencing, you know, where that's been alleged. So she, in point of fact, she's, um, I think, about nine defendants, and she has sentenced two to below, uh, two to the minimum, and I think seven to the, uh, a little below the minimum. Wow. And Why wouldn't you just to, throw away the key with because, those people? Because it's it's child pornography. For child pornography, this is your your what you have stuff on your computer, right? You could go to prison for decades. The laws are really out of date. And in those cases, some of them the federal prosecutors recommended below the minimum. The sentencing laws are out of date and this all the judges about 60% of judges sentence below the maximum on those kinds of crimes because it's, you know, you have to compare them to, you know, murder, to different kind arson. Women. What's the timing on this whole process? They expect that before the Senate goes away on its Easter break that the process will be done and maybe there'll be a vote before then. They're hoping that there'll be a vote before then. And from your perspective, you, what do you think the odds are of her getting confirmed here? I think the odds are, I'm going to say 99%. Really? Just to leave, just to leave a... Okay. 
So Matt and won't tell me later on that I was But that doesn't do anything really for the direction no, of the leaning of the why, court. No, that's why this is not going to be, you know, one of those, like, Kavanaugh, right. that meant right. something. Yep, that meant Amy something. Coney Barrett, that meant something. But this is just replacing right. one liberal with another liberal in a court that has a six-person right. conservative majority. Yep, all right. All right, June, thank you so much for joining us here in our studio. June Grasso, host of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Opinion, uh, giving us the latest on the Supreme Court uh, process. Hopefully, uh, get uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, uh, I guess the, if you're a member of Congress, I'd like to get this done uh, by Easter. Well, we've been spending a lot of time recently talking about the rates market, the yield curve. We're at or near inversion in various portions of the yield curve. What does that mean? Uh, let's bring in R.J. Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager for Federated Hermes. R.J., when you see certain parts of the U.S. yield curve at or near inversion, does that me meaningfully raise the recession risk in your mind? Uh, good morning. Uh, I think it reflects the, the fact that we have a shock going on, sort of a series of them, the most notable being the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the myriad economic impacts in terms of the West's response to that invasion. Uh, that's a clear aggregate supply shock, broad-based, exogenous, if you will, coming from the geopolitical realm. Um, and that, historically, increases the risk of recession. Um, add to that that the Fed's in tightening mode, uh, and uh, historically that also suggests increased risk of recession. Oftentimes when the Fed has to pivot aggressively to fight inflation, the result is, is a recession eventually uh, ensues. So we're facing both of those factors, the geopolitical shock and the, and the Fed's 180 pivot from transitory to inflation's a problem. It makes sense that the yield curve is flattening given both of those. You put those two together, it's clear that recession risk is rising in the market's mind. However, I don't think the yield curve inverting is causal. I don't think that ever causes recessions. Uh, I, I, I understand that people, you know, borrow short, lend long, and, and can slow down uh, the, the financial mechanism that you see in financial intermediation, but I think that the flattening of the curve is more people's expectations that recession risk has risen. It's not a causal relationship in my mind. I mean, some people have been saying lately the yield curve may have caused COVID-19. We saw it invert right before the pandemic. That was a joke to those who didn't get it. I'm looking at Paul's face thinking he didn't get that. Spurious correlation. He didn't get that. No, the yield, I mean, obviously that that was our most recent recession, right? And uh, right. if you believe in the predictive qualities of an inverted yield curve, you've got to give it a lot of credit for that. Um, Absolutely. No one could, could have seen that coming. Nonetheless, we have very high inflation and... There is concerns of a growth slowdown. Um, even if we don't go into a recession, it looks like we could almost grind to a halt here. Are you worried about stagflation? Um, I think uh, for about six to 12 months ago, the word stagflation sort of made my skin crawl. You know, it, it seemed inappropriate for the context at the time. I now think it's a word we should be using. Uh, it's very clear that the exogenous shock arising from the conflict uh, is the kind of thing that results in broad-based inflation, which was already bad before the Russian troops invaded Ukraine. Uh, it's also the kind of thing that produces uh, demand destruction and ultimately slows down economic activity. So I do think stagflation is an appropriate word, probably more so for Europe. Maybe I'm being extreme, but I think when you actually have recession outcomes and inflation together, uh, stagflation is the right word to use. Now, here in the United States, I think it's a stagflationary shock. Uh, we may be able to skirt a recession. 
Uh, the risks have clearly risen as evidenced by the yield curve, um, but it's not baked in the cake. I mean, we have a lot of strong economic momentum here in both the labor market. Balance sheets are strong, both for households and businesses. Uh, there's a good chance that the United States can sort of power through this. Um, that said, global markets are global in nature, and the response that you're seeing in terms of the yield curve, uh, I think, reflects the rising risks that are there. RJ, we got the oil on the move higher again today. Uh, WTI crude up over 5% to about $110 a barrel. Just kind of, you know, reiterating in people's minds the inflationary pressures that are out there in this economy. How do you think about inflation, whether it's, you know, the duration of this inflationary cycle we're in or the severity? I'm struck by uh, the fact that the markets still have pretty high confidence. If you look at the the slope or the yield curve of, of the U.S. tips break-evens. Uh, it's very downward sloping. It has been inverted for some time, meaning that near-term near expectations for inflation are much higher than long-term expectations. So, for example, um, uh, ILBE on your Bloomberg, uh, the break-even of two and three years is, are each well north of 4%, 478 uh, for two-year break-evens, you know, astronomically high by, by recent standards in recent decades. Yeah, when you go out to the 10-year, it's down to 294. Now, 294 is high in the history of tips, but that's still a sharp disinflation between the shorter break-even and the longer break-even. You go all the way out to the 30-year, it's at 255. So I think that the, the Fed has given the market what it needs in the sense that the market needs to believe that the Federal Reserve believes inflation fighting is still a huge part of their mandate. And in fact, they are now focusing primarily on that side of their dual mandate. Uh, if the Fed were not to have done that, I think we'd be facing a much more difficult bond market right now than we already have, um, in, in the sense that nominal yields would be rising more rapidly, that these inflation break-evens probably wouldn't be nearly as inverted, and losses would be more stark than they already are. And it's been a pretty rough year for bonds when you think about the, uh, the, the, tre the Treasury Aggregate Index, for example, is on a year-to-date basis, the Bloomberg Aggregate Index, I should say, uh, is now uh, down 5.2%, and the Treasury Index itself, that component, is down 4.6%. So rough. the inflation process, I think people believe the Fed's doing what it needs to do, and inflation should diminish as we move forward. If it doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, the bond market sell-off will, will actually become more difficult. It'll become more protracted. Mm -hmm. All right, RJ, uh, thanks so much for joining us once again. Always appreciate getting your perspective there. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager for Federated Hermes. Uh, looking about stagflation is something that is, is a term that's coming into RJ's vocabulary recently. And he's uh, a Wolverine. And he's a Michigan Wolverine. That's I, right. Actually, I was looking. I think he might have gone to the University of Michigan for a four-year period in which Michigan won every single game. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, against uh, the Ohio State University. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. This is a really fast-moving story. It's caused a lot of outrage among investors. This is so fascinating. The market shut down in a way it's never done before. That's going to have consequences for years to come. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right, Matt, I've told you before, I take New Jersey Transit. Are we doing a sounder? Did I just talk right over that? Oh, well, no worries. No, okay, we, I got to get we did, the story. We did the sounder. Did we? Okay. Yeah. All right. But, you know, so I take New Jersey Transit in every day during the week, Matt. And yeah. I would say the trains now are maybe 50, 60% full. But on the weekends, just packed. Everybody's coming in to see games and go to bars and restaurants and stuff. But 
people ain't coming back to work in size, and that's a problem for New York City, I think. Alicia Diaz, she's a writer for Bloomberg's Top Live team. She's got the big take story of the day. Again, Alicia, thanks so much for joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What you find She came here, to work today. She came to work today. Absolutely. Which is yeah, probably more than you can say for a lot of her <laughs> <Yeah>. supervisors. <laughs> Um, so we kind of looked at this as two groups. There's there's the tourist group, you know, we, we're not having as many international visitors. And then also we're not having those, like you mentioned, the, the people who are commuting into the office. And so it seems like a, as a result, a lot of those restaurants, the coffee shops, the places around Midtown and Fidei are kind of just struggling to to keep their doors open. And Fidei. Fidei is what the kids call the financial district. <laughs> That's right. My, yeah. my, my daughter tried to explain that to me. It's like, kid, I've been working down Wall Street for 35 years. I just, I I, I just tuned into that as well. <laughs> the kids who sit around Alicia, and call we do this hey, all the time. Worry about us. All right. So what, what has to happen here? Is it are the tourists coming back? Because I was in Midtown a couple of weeks ago and I thought I felt a much more European international tourist play. Are we seeing any of that? It seems like it's slowly coming back, especially with um, you know Omicron being subdued. But it looks like more international tourists, at least to the level it was before the pandemic, still aren't returning. Okay. And that could be to you know travel restrictions or still nervous about getting COVID or spreading COVID. Um, and international tourists tend to spend the most money, and so that's what a lot of the the sectors rely on the most. So the problem, I mean, I can imagine here where we're sitting in Midtown. The problem must be that no one's coming back to the office because all of the big box stores, for example, that are d downstairs in this building or across the street are empty still. Mm -hmm. I mean, they haven't been um, filled back up again. I don't understand what the problem is in the Bronx, because here in New York, it's 7.6 percent unemployment, some of the worst of any major city in the country. But the Bronx is 11 percent right. and it's not exactly a Wall Street hub up there. Right. So what's the problem? That's a great question. And it seems like um, this is also pre, um, disproportionately impacting um, a lot of black workers as well. Um, and that be, could be because, um, you know, they're more so in the service I industry. See. They're more um, doing face to face jobs like um, being in healthcare or that kind of thing. And so um, that rate is almost double for, for other workers. And so um, there could be some ties to that. Um, I get so yeah. workers in the Bronx basically would, well, they'd live in the Bronx. They'd come down and work in FIDI. But since no one's going to Wall Street, uh, they can't get those jobs back, which is why their unemployment is higher. That's a very real possibility. So what are we hearing about how we're going to repurpose some of these commercial real estate buildings in like Midtown Manhattan, for example? Mm -hmm. I've heard some people saying, well, maybe we'll convert them into apartments. That might address maybe some of the crazy craziness that we have here in the, in the residential rental market. What are you hearing? Yeah, um, so we're hearing a mix of things. Uh, definitely that residential aspect where this could be more affordable housing. Some are saying it's going to be more likely um, like luxury apartment buildings. And so hmm. um, does that really address the, the problem is another question. Right. Um, I've also heard that this kind of opens the door in terms of just recreating Midtown and uh, maybe adding more cultural hubs or, or more biotech incubators and, and that type of thing and really rethinking this um, like corporate center Who's area. doing that? Who do you think is going to do that? Is it the city administration, the, the mayor's office? Is it the, I guess maybe an office of economic deployment or something in the city? Is it the city that's really going to do that or is it going to be maybe a public-private partnership? Um, there have been talks, at least with the mayor's new plan, of doing a public-private partnership, and so I think that's a very real possibility as well. Um, and they've just talked about like inklings and ideas, but it doesn't seem like anything is super concrete just yet. Um, so interested to see what kind of comes out of those plans and ideas. Is there 
a connection with the crime level. It seems kind of silly to worry about crime if you're a kid who grew up in their 70s. Right. Because there was real crime uh, back then relative to this. But this is much worse than the kind of Giuliani Bloomberg eras. You know, we see also a, a huge amount of homelessness, drug use, um, theft. Is that is that a problem that's causing some of this unemployment? Or is the unemployment a problem that's causing that? That, that's a great question. And I, I think that there is some aspect that we looked at in terms of people leaving Manhattan. Um, it doesn't seem to be a, a mass exodus by any means, but it seems like that could be people starting to to trickle out of the city, whether it's due to high rent or, or crime. And um, that being such a, a center of the economic hub for the entire city um, could have a big impact. All right, Alicia, thank you so much for joining us here. Alicia Diaz, she's a reporter for a Bloomberg's top live team joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.